This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. The future is coming. Make it brighter with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a unique website, showcase your work, blog or publish content, or even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. You can customize everything from look and feel to settings and products using beautiful templates created by world-class designers. And there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code MANLINESS to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We live in a time of hype and self-aggrandizement. My guest today argues that what the world needs more of are quiet professionals, people whose only focus is to get the job done well. His name is Rob Shaw, and he's the founder and president of Mountain Tactical Institute. We had Rob on the podcast last year to discuss his physical fitness philosophy. Today on the show, I talked to Rob about his philosophy towards work and life that he's laid out in a series of essays on his site about what it means to be a quiet professional. We begin by unpacking the foundational definition of a quiet professional. And then Rob walks us through the traits and attributes he thinks one must develop to embody this ideal. Rob's ideas are refreshingly understated in a culture that puts a premium on bombast. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash quietprofessional. And Rob joins me now via clearcast.io. Rob Shaw, welcome back to the show. Hi, Brett. Thanks for having me. So we had you on a while back ago uh, to talk about your company, Mountain Athlete, Tactical Athlete. Like you are, we talked about more about physical program, physical training programming, how you train individuals who are working in the mountains, like backcountry skiers, hunters who are out there in the mountains. You also train LEOs, military guys who are going to be in mountainous regions. But today, I'd like to get a little more philosophical because um, you have this article on your your site, Mountain Athlete called being the quiet professional, quiet professionalism. And throughout the, I guess this year, you've been kind of fleshing that idea out more. And in that article, you wrote that you've been thinking about this idea of the quiet professional for years and you've been chewing on it. Why has it been something you've been thinking about for so long? You know, I, uh, my, I think the idea or that term quiet professional kind of comes from the military special forces communities, specifically, you know, in the army special forces, green berets and those types of folks. And years ago, the first tactical athlete programming course I taught was down in Tampa Bay and McGill Air Force Base and some special forces guys down there and from, from different services. And one was a green beret and a, a real good friend of mine. He's a master sergeant and retired as a, uh, master Sergeant and uh, Sergeant Major. And we and him just kind of started talking about this idea of a quiet professional and some of the ideals. And for whatever reason, that just kind of caught my attention as I started to examine that idea in my own life and my own professionalism. And it just kind of built and grew from there to the point where I just had to start writing it down, some of my thoughts and, and uh, putting some framework to it. So uh, we're going to get into some of these specific traits, but how would you describe a quiet professional, like maybe this would be best. Like who are some examples of quiet professionals? You mentioned some special forces guys, but any other examples from your own life, like what sort of encapsulate what you're thinking about or your ideal quiet professional is? You see these quiet professionals. One thing about it is that the idea of being a quiet professional is really an internal idea. It's the idea is you kind of set your own expectations and you, you try to grow internally to those and, and now, outward expectations or accolades or anything 
getting beyond that is part of what part of the journey to to become a quiet professional. And there's no real job title or profession or education level that determines it. I've met quiet professionals, you know, who check me out at the grocery store, who, you know, come and do my plumbing, you know, who, you know, work on my accounting, who are attorneys. It's just a really an approach to life and to their to their craft, which is their their work. Just kind of a mission first, service first, just doing doing the job in a craftsman like manner that kind of you can just sense it from them. They they have a certain solace about them, you know, and a, a sense of peace. They're not perfect, but you can kind of see that they they know what the good questions are and they're working on those answers with the real, you know, sometimes the hard thing is finding out what the what's the real question. And they they kind of know what it is and they're and they're working on the solution. So I can't really point to any specific examples where I'd be uncomfortable doing it um, because right, it would right. be embarrassed maybe. <laughs> but uh but there's no, um, even though that the term kind of comes from this tactical special forces community, in my mind, anybody in any profession or any walk of life can be a quiet professional. So, I mean, when I hear that phrase, I think of someone who like, yeah, like you said, they, they just, they do the work, they do it well, and they don't try to make a big deal about it. Like they just let the results speak for themselves and they don't go out of their way to say, hey, look at this great thing that I did. They just, they do it and then they, that's it. Yeah, you know, the bigger idea is that all work can be turned into a craft and quiet professionals are craftsmen or craftswomen. And the craft itself is uh, the idea of a craft when it comes to work. There's this kind of stage you go through where you kind of always chasing perfection, knowing you're never going to get it, but just enjoying the journey along the way and, and keep on aspiring for that. And that when you make that transition in your occupation or whatever, it, it kind of blossoms and can become really uh, something that's really enriching and fulfilling for you. One of the things I kind of point out is that, you know, quiet professionals really ideally put their mission first and they're kind of dedicated to service. And uh, you would think on the outside that this is something that is, uh, you know, altruistic. And, and certainly it is. Um, these are not self-absorbed and, and you kind of focus on serving others. Uh, but there's also an incredible liberating element to it. It takes a lot of energy to be self-absorbed and selfish <laughs> and it can wear you out. I think uh, it's one of the reasons you, these uh, self-absorbed people are never very happy. It just takes too much energy. But if you're kind of focused on service and mission first, not only are you hopefully uh, serving other people, but it is in its own quiet way, liberating. Your choices are, you know, the what you're going to do, the first question is what's going to benefit the unit or the mission or the people in my life. And generally, when you have choices, the answer to that question is pretty clear. And then you just do it. And it, it kind of cleans some up. And that mental clarity is is really valuable and liberating. No, yeah. I love that idea of how constraints can actually make us more free. And I love that section where you highlight you know, one of the traits of a of quiet professionals, they have a mission. They know what the mission is and they make all their choices based around that mission. And now if you are in, embedded in a unit, combat unit, a military unit, or you're a law enforcement officer, like you have this mission sort of imposed on you from the outside, right? You know what the mission is. What if you're not in that position? Like what if you're just a regular guy, a civilian working a nine to five? How do you, how do you think they can figure out what their mission is so they can kind of tap into that quiet professional ethos? Um, I don't know that that's a complicated question. You know, a teacher certainly has, you know, their job tasks are fairly, you know, direct. But even 
I think that the trouble comes in where issues come up, you know, is it worth it? Am I getting accolades? Am I getting paid enough? Is, uh, or do people appreciate my, my job or appreciate the work I'm doing? So again, it really doesn't matter what the, the actual job task is or what the, the work is. It's the, your approach to it that makes you a quiet professional. And again, in, in every, in my, in my own experience, when I, when I see people who are like this, it, you know, uh, there's, believe me, there's plenty of army special forces guys who aren't quiet professionals. Right. right. And, there's, and there's, and there's plenty of, you know, people who, you know, just work in everyday lives who are kind of rare ideals to aspire to the way you frame that question implies that you have to have a service-based, you know, altruistic mission to be a, or a, a job description to be a quiet professional. And I, I'm not too sure I agree with that. I don't like to limit it to certain professions for sure. At least in my mind, I don't. Right. Because I mean, every job you have, you're, you're in a sense, you're providing a service, right? You're doing something to help another human being. So like, I guess what you're, what you're saying here is a quiet professional does the work well for the sake of doing the work well, because that's what you were supposed to do and not for any sort of monetary gain or, you know, getting a pat on the back. One of the examples I use in, in uh, one of the essays I wrote is uh, my own grandmother who came to live with us when I was in elementary school. And uh, she had been a maid in the casinos in Reno, Nevada. And uh, I was helping her one uh, summer morning or had to help her make beds in the house. And I was not interested in this. I was maybe 11, 12 years old or maybe a little younger. And I wanted to grab my fishing pole and go down the park and do some fishing. And uh, we were making a bed and, you know, I said, okay, it's good enough. You know, let's, you know, let's go on to the next one so I can get out of here. And she said, no, it's not. And she said, I'm a professional. And by God, that bed was, you know, corners folded. If you can make a bed and, and do it in a way that's a work of art, she did it. And no one was watching her. None of us would have known the difference. But that example is always, I've always thought of that the dignity that she brought to her work, even when she wasn't working, it was still, you know, something she was known for and that she took pride in. And there's a certain dignity that that quiet professionals bring to the work, regardless of the situation, you know, regardless of the compensation, regardless of who's looking, it's that, that bigger idea that is so beautiful. No. Yeah. I love that. And, And one of the other ideas that you traits, you think that a quiet professional should have is this idea that they're, they're a grinder. What does what does that mean? I think we all like kind of you know that you're going to rise and grind and hustle and whatever. But how do you? But but I, th- I feel like when people talk about grinding, it's often in that like unquiet professional way. You know, it's like boasting. Here I am working so hard. Look at me. For you, how does a quiet professional grind? There's an uh, I, idea to the idea of being a grinder that great leaps forward. You know, our few inflating and progress comes. You know, a series of steps of you know, kind of constant small improvement, which, which takes awareness and, and reflection and, and just grinding um, in, in my mind. I've kind of thought about uh, being a grinder and being this type of person who's kind of a hard worker in kind of three steps, just kind of based on my own, own experience and, and people I've known in my life. And the first is that there's this expectation that you're a hard worker and it's generally put on you by your parents or by organization you're in and so others kind of say you know if you want to do this you know you should be a hard worker and that expectation of others is why you work so hard and then there's this next step where there's some pride that comes in and instead of others focusing that expectation on 
on you. You kind of do it yourself because now you're known as a hard worker and you take pride in that. And so you, uh, you work really hard to kind of keep that reputation up, but it's still not about really the, the work. And the, and the final one is this idea where you, you kind of work hard. You don't really work hard. You just end up seeing what you're doing as a craft. And you put in the, the details and the hours and the hard work, not because it's expected, not because it's out of pride, because you want to be known as a hard worker, but because uh, you see your work as this incredible gift. And you're always trying to, like I said before, kind of reach this idea of perfection and whatever you're doing. And you know you're never going to get there. But along the way, the, the learning is unending. It's always teaching you and that that journey of that learning and that frustration and humility and, and, uh, you know, I guess failure and, and moving on from that, all that journey is kind of part of what, what pushes you along and, and keeps you, you know, kind of at the, at the grindstone. So when I say grinder, I mean, in an adoring way, I'm kind of one of those grinder guys who really doesn't have a lot of talent, but just has kept, kept at it. And I admire other people who are kind of like that, but even, even the most successful I've, people I've known are, you know, when you, take away the gloss and stuff generally i mean uh, there's a little bit of talent and a lot and a lot of hard work and and the successful people who are happy do it for the craft of it you can be successful and work hard and, and still not be happy but if you're able to turn what you do into a craft and understand that craft craftsmanship element of it then you can be happy doing it i mean is that getting to that point does that take time like is is it something that you, you have to go through those steps. Like you'll do something because there's an expectation and then you do it because you get accolades and then eventually you just do it for the, for the love of the craft, for the sake of the craft. Yeah. All of the, all of the, the entire journey to, I think being a quiet professional is like two steps forward and one step back because <laughs> you fail, you know, along the way, you know, you don't always put mission first, you know, you, you know, you, you can be selfish, you can, uh, you know, be lazy sometimes or, or whatever. It takes time. Yeah. I think that the, you know, it's, it is this kind of journey, not only within the work, but within you as a, as an individual, individual. And, and one of the things that I mentioned is the idea of the difference between experience and wisdom. It's on your path of becoming wise and becoming wise takes work and failure. Yeah. It takes time. At least it does for me or it has for me. I'm still, you know, I'm, 49 going on 50 and uh, I still have a lot of work to do. Well, this idea of wisdom and experience, because you have a, another essay about this, kind of one of the traits of a quiet professionals, you know, we want wisdom and we often gain that from experience, but you can have experiences, right? And not gain any wisdom. Because I know lots of people who have had lots of terrible, you know, self-inflicted terrible experience, but they don't, they're none the wiser for it. So in your experience in, in, in working with special operators and in, in the line of the type of men you work with, how do you see, like, is there like a process that people use to learn, ensure those experiences, those mistakes are, you, you learn from them? You know, you get experience by accident, no matter what, you know, just living gives you experience. And, you know, we've all met people in their seventies or, or seniors who are just bitter and angry. And I don't think uh, they, they obviously have lots of experience. They've lived for, you know, seven or eight decades, <laughs> but I want to say they're wise. How can you, you know, go through all that and still not kind of identify what's important. Everybody has experience, but wisdom takes work. And, and in my own life, I guess, and kind of watching others, I've identified 
some of the steps, you know, kind of the to-do list along the way. You know, the first one is to to learn from your mistakes and to really learn from your mistakes. I mean, this takes some reflection, some really clear-eyed self-examination, acknowledgement and owning it, looking at your responsibility. It was a mistake and maybe even some penance and then to act on a committed commitment to not make that mistake or something similar moving forward. Like you said, you know, people keep making the same mistakes. Forgiveness, others first, but really I think you need to learn to forgive yourself and understand you messed up, acknowledge it, own it, and then move on and not continually beat yourself up about that. That takes wisdom. For me personally, this idea of, you know, embracing death as I, I get older, you know, my knees hurt in the morning and I don't recover as fast and I got little tweaks and all these things are just uh, signals to of nature to me that, uh, you know, my, my, uh, you know, my time on this earth is limited. <laughs> I'm not going to live forever. And that can be a beautiful tool to help you understand that you only have so much time and um, to live in the present, which is one of the most difficult things that we all uh, can learn to do or, or try to aspire to being tolerant. The the older I've got, the less righteous I become. And the more when things come up, I take a step back and see the world in, in shades of gray and um, say it depends a lot rather than this is right or this is wrong. And I think that is a part of this idea to of my, of my own internal growing tolerance. The most wise people that I've met are also the most tolerant. They, you know, cultural change, they, they're resilient, they're adaptable, they understand what's important. And the minor differences, especially between people, just aren't that important. Um, they're the most tolerant. Another is to de- detach from expectations. In other words, at some point in your life, you, you'll hopefully learn that what other people expect or what maybe the society expects or, or whatever may not align with who you are. And once you're able to give that up, there's a sense of a, a liberty to that and maybe a grounding sense that, that makes you more wise. You've probably heard this before, you know, in your, in your 20s, you're worried about uh, what people think about you. And then in your 30s, you're like, oh, I don't care what people think about me. And then in your 40s, you kind of realize they were never thinking about you the whole time, right? <laughs> I think that's part of this idea of detaching yourself from expectations of others and kind of identifying who you are and living your life accordingly the way you want to live it. And then finally, just to be humble, understand that you're not owed anything, not special, life's not fair. The universe is huge and time is infinite and we are really, really insignificant. And when you kind of realize it, that you're just not that damn important. You're, I think, able to let some of this angst and stuff kind of go and find some solace and, again, kind of live more in the present and identify what's important. Understand that just just like all these things, I, I kind of find to be elements of, of what it means to be a quiet professional. There's, there's always two steps forward and one step back. I mean, the, the entire process is a journey, and it's not like you just wake up one day as a quiet professional you make a lot of mistakes and learn a lot of a lot of stuff along the way it's just all part of this bigger journey
We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Are you a small business owner or a hiring manager at a corporation who's hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experiences, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest application you receive so you never miss a great catch. The great candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sides trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. All you have to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness, the smartest way to hire. Also by Squarespace. Take it from me, someone who's built a few websites. If you don't know how to code, you're going to have a, just a hard time. You're going to be breaking your website, trying to make customizations yourself. And then the other solution is well, I'm going to hire someone, but if you don't have money to do that, that's kind of not an option either. With Squarespace, you can get a great looking website up in minutes with just a few point and clicks of your mouse. They've got beautiful templates created by world-class designers. So you can take those and then customize them however you want. You can showcase your work, blog or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. They've got 24-7 customer support. So if you ever run into an issue, you can get to them and they're going to get back to you right away. There's nothing to install, patch or upgrade ever when you use Squarespace because they do that for you. And they've got analytics so you can see how your site is growing in real time. Also, it's optimized for mobile right out of the box. So it's going to look good on smartphones and tablets as well. If you're ready to start a new website, try it with Squarespace. Got an offer for you. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. I want to go back to this idea of being wise means you're not self-righteous. The problem, what I've seen is there's a lot of leaders, once they're put in a position of leadership, wouldn't call them. Let's not say there a lot of people who are put in positions of leadership doesn't necessarily mean you're a leader, even if you're in a position of leadership. They become self-righteous and self-important. What, what do you think, what is it about being in a position of authority that makes people like that? You know, the uh, just some really uh, simple elements of that type of position that maybe cater to some of our worst instincts. The first is a leadership position, no matter what the level implies that you're somehow above the the people below you, that there's something special about you. And so that kind of caters to maybe some of our worst instincts. And, and as part of that, it comes with this idea that, you know, you're smarter than others. <laughs> and uh, with the idea that you're smarter than others, then the way you see the world is right. And the way others see the world is wrong. You know, leadership is, is tough. Leaders do have to make decisions. And at some point they, those, you know, the, the people or the situations affected can see those as black and white. You know, that the idea of being self-righteous, certainly I've fallen into that and in just, uh, you know, the work that I've done and over the course of my life. And, and now I, I have hopefully gotten to the point because I can feel that willing up inside me, Brett, right? I can feel this, you know, kind of, <laughs> well, you know, uh, when, when I feel it coming on and, and uh, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time now, I, I kind of know what that feels like and I'm able to step back and say, whoa, you know, every time you've, you've followed through on this feeling, it hasn't worked out well. <laughs> so uh, maybe it's time to take a step back and, uh, and uh, to take a dose of humility and, and open your eyes a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, it takes uh, a special person to get into a leadership position. You know, maybe the best example from history is, is Marcus Aurelius and, you know, his meditations and, 
as you read about, you know, the emperor of Rome, who is, you know, by far, you know, the most powerful person in the world, you know, he, he wrote in his diary, don't let it go to your head, right? All the time. And so that is, uh, so I think, again, there's just elements of leadership that kind of catered or leadership position that kind of can cater to our worst instincts. And it takes a, a wise person to see that and, and not let it happen to him or her. And what do you do to like, when you feel right, like, okay, I'm becoming really self-important here. Mountain athlete is the greatest fitness program ever. And all others are terrible, right? When you get into that mode and you're thinking black and white, what do you do to, to pull yourself back and inject a bit of humility? Do you have like any specific tactics you use or practices? Oh boy. You know, that's a, a, a great question. Um, I, I think first I may, yeah, just getting to the point where you can't, I can feel that coming on has been a huge step for me. Uh, so I, I feel it coming. <laughs> if you don't feel it coming and are able to detach from your emotions, then it's hard to, to stop it. So that's, that's the first thing. I, and I don't know. I, and I think the What's caused me to be able to feel it coming is just learning from my mistakes when I've acted on, on that self-righteousness and seen how it's worked out. It hasn't worked out well. So I've reflected <laughs> and taken a step back and clear-eyed examination of kind of what happened and uh, how I got myself that position and, and worked to try not to let that happen again. Uh, one of the things that, that kind of comes up with that is generally, in my experience, when that kind of thing comes up, is generally some kind of conflict with with somebody else. And one of the, one of the things I kind of learned that's really helped me a, a couple things, especially in, in conflict with other people is the ability to say and embrace, you may be right. Just be able to say that instead of saying you're wrong or whatever, but be able to say, you may be right. Let me think about that. So that's one thing, one key that I have is that. And then the other time, that sense comes up is where maybe somebody is you're competing with in some way or another a person or organization and they have some success and it gets you upset for whatever reason. It took me a long time to be able to say for, you know, my competitors, good for them, good for you, good for them. But just being able to say that, Oh my God, just being able to say good for them has been able to help me turn away from the outside to what I can control, which is my own performance, my own attitude, and has really just been really liberating. So I guess those are, first is recognizing it, being able to say, you may be right, not only say it, but then take a step back and see it from that person's side or that organization side. And then, you know, when someone you don't like or you're competing with or whatever has success, being able to say good for them. Those, those three things have really helped me with that. One of the other traits you talk about that a quiet professional has, and this maybe this kind of goes along with the idea of a grinder, is that they're able to do those, you know, keep doing those mundane tasks that are necessary for success. And in, you know, your personal life, it could just be as simple as just like general hygiene, right? Or exercise or doing the laundry or whatever. And you can think those are really mundane. You just want to not do it. But like, how does a professional a quiet professional, ensure that he keeps doing those mundane work-a-day things that he knows are necessary for that sort of baseline success? One of the things that most of us learn when we have some type of failure is when you, you, you take a step back and you look at why you failed, most of the time you'll find a failure in the fundamentals. 
quiet professionals that I've known, whether it be athletes or mountain guides or soldiers, their fundamentals are really solid. I was just reading about a story about an experiment that was conducted on performance. It was uh, done on some singers. All the singers had to, you know, they had to go through an initial set of fundamental notes before they sang the piece they were going to do. And the uh, researchers put some gadgets on the singers that could measure their intensity and brainwave um, and stress when they completed these, this set of fundamental practice notes before they sang their piece. And then they took that data and separated the, the good singers from the, just the average singers. And the really good singers had a lot of stress when they, they practiced those fundamental notes. They put a lot of effort into it. They were really concerned about how well they did, and they really were checking their performance. And the uh, the singers who who weren't at a higher level didn't pay as much, nearly as much attention to that fundamental work. And that's really, I think, key to this idea of you know always going through the fundamentals and the daily habits and you know those daily mundane tasks who are hidden in the background but are really the foundation for higher level performance. So that's, I think that for quiet professionals, it's, it's an acknowledgement of the role that, that fundamental work plays in higher level performance. So you talk about how quiet professionals are willing, willingly embrace making those hard decisions because we're all going to face them no matter what sort of line of work we're in. We're going to face them in our family life. Uh, what's your approach to making those you know gut gut decisions, do or die decisions? Yeah, um, I kind of just in uh, my life kind of reflecting back and, and the people I've known, there's some tools that we kind of developed when, it's, when we come to making really hard decisions. And, and hard decisions generally kind of pit our head versus our heart, right? Our head tells us to do one thing and our heart tells us to do another. And, and we get in this infinite loop of back and forth of and going round and around without being able to, to kind of identify which way to go. One of the first things that I, I kind of point to as a tool that people can use is if you know what you're doing right now is wrong, stop doing it. Even if you don't know what comes next, because if you're in the wrong profession or in the wrong relationship and you continue along that route, knowing it's wrong, you know, maybe looking for the next thing to do, you sometimes don't have the space to, to find that next thing by stopping, stopping what you're doing. Even if you know, if you don't know what's going to come next, it'll force you to to head down that path to find to find out what what is right for you. I've met lots of people who kind of get in this rut where they know things are bad, but it's not bad enough to quit. And they can stay in this rut miserable for years and years and years. This tool of if you know it's not right, stop doing it is a real tool to kind of break you out of that rut. Another thing is that kind of goes along this way is not making a decision is a decision. If you're in the wrong profession and uh, you're in your 20s or 30s or and you know it's wrong, you know, but you don't know what you want to do next or you're scared or whatever, and pretty soon you're 35, it's more difficult to some of those opportunities you had when you're younger are gone now. And so not making a decision, cut out some of those opportunities and choices you had before. So it's kind of like you are making the decision, you're limiting your choices. What I've kind of learned in my own life is that deciding against integrity whether it be the integrity of who you are, who you want to be, and doing something opposite of that, or the easier one is just the, the idea of moral integrity always comes with a painful cost. You always have to pay the piper when you decide against 
integrity of some way. I understand that when I say that, it's not, I don't mean to be preachy. I kind of adopt the Aristotle approach to, you know, becoming a person of integrity, which is you're never going to be perfect, but uh, the more decisions you make that kind of align with who you, who you think you are or with moral integrity, the easier it becomes. And the more down that road you go, which uh, is best. Uh, next one is that I've, I've, I've kind of learned that if integrity isn't an issue and it comes down to deciding between your head and your heart, always go with your heart. <laughs> I've met lots of people who have gone with their head and regretted it, but I've never met somebody who's gone with their heart and have. And sometimes going with your heart, you know, is maybe not the best decision, practical decision, but I think that it's generally the best decision for you. And then finally, uh, I, I like the idea of um, not artificially limiting your, your options or your choices. I found that happens a lot with the people who, for some reason, I've, become, I've done a lot of life coaching in my work <laughs> on the side, I guess. And, uh, and a lot of people think, oh, it's just this choice or this choice. But if you take some time and explore the different options, you have a lot more choices or, or get some more information. Taking that time to get that information in a deliberate way really can make your decision much more clear. And then finally, I, I kind of created a happiness, happiness formula that I've kind of observed and kind of experienced in my own life. And I've, I think three things will make you happy. And one is uh, doing work you love. Two is being with the, living around the people you love. Three is living in a place you love. And if you can get two out of those three, you're, you're doing really good. And if you get three out of three, you've hit the jackpot. So another part of being a quiet professional or just being a professional in general is that you're, you're never satisfied with where you're at. This is kind of going the idea. You, you do things for the sake of the craft and you're always strive, striving for perfection. You're never going to get there, but you, you strive for it. You know, there's, a lot, there's a lot of stuff out there about self-improvement and professional development. What do you think is different from, what do you think, what do you think makes the way of quiet professional goes after self-improvement and professional development different from say how most people think about it? Maybe it's in the attention, that word self-improvement or that, that those two words, the first word is self. And maybe the quiet professional would say, you know, improve mission performance or serve people better instead of self-improvement. And then taking that attention off him or herself and kind of working in these other areas has a a similar maybe a similar effect but maybe a more authentic genuine and lasting impact on a person's life and and wisdom as they they move forward that that would be the maybe perhaps the the one difference is just that idea of self-improvement in, in a way can obscure things or muddy stuff up in terms of what is, is really important you know, down the road in the long run. So you're, it sounds like you're, you're striving after like selfless self-improvement. Like you're improving yourself at, for the, the sake of a, a larger purpose. Yeah. Thanks for helping me out there. I was struggling. Yeah, but you're right. Yeah. That idea of kind of selfless self-improvement. Yeah. This idea of instead of how can I improve personally, how can I make the mission first or make the team first and do more towards that? And, those, and that difference of attention can make all the difference in, in a person's life. Yeah. And I, I noticed in my own experience, whenever I've been trying to get myself better for a larger purpose beyond myself, I actually get like 
I actually improve more than if I were just doing it for myself. Does that make sense? Right. Like I think back to like my football days, right? I wasn't I I put in all the effort in the gym and stayed long after practice longer, not for me, because like I wanted the team to do well. And I've done that in my own professional life. It's like whenever I focus on how can I help, you know, uh, my audience better, I don't know, I I improve more when I'm not thinking about myself. Yeah, that's it's been my experience in my life too is when I focused on in in my work, you know, focused on improving the the programming and my coaching and my writing for the sake of doing a, be- a better job at our mission. And, and my experience has been the same that I've learned more about myself doing that. The path has been more clear. That's one of the, the, there's an interesting element to this bigger idea of aspiring to be a quiet professional is like you'd said before, when you kind of embrace these ideas over the course of whatever your career is, embrace them more and more life gets and your work just gets simpler. It gets more clear. (laughs) And that, that clarity is liberating. And in like, instead of me first, you know, mission first, Instead of self improvement, team improvement. Those you know, that different in perspective can really, I think, clear things up and and uh, have a more lasting and enriching effect for the the individual and and the organization down the road. So there's this phrase you see. I've seen it on the back, like on morale patches, on you know, sort of tactical vests and bags, and it's this idea of embracing the suck. What, is, what does that mean, and why, why should a quiet professional embrace the suck? That, there's an element of you know, experience and wisdom that, that comes along with that. I think when you see those morale patches, there's this macho element to it. It's part of my list for what it means to be a quiet professional, too, but I don't mean it to be you know, embrace the suck because you, know, you can suffer. <laughs> In my own experience, it's this idea that everything is hard. Just life's hard, and... And when you get to a certain age, you kind of, and things are going along well, you're like, this isn't natural. And when you're, when you're younger, when the hard stuff comes, you get all upset about it and disappointed and life's not fair. But at least me now, when, when things are going along too swimmingly, I get a little suspicious. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I, I know the suck is coming. I know the hard part is coming. And then when it gets here, I kind of embrace it. It's like, it's like an old friend who's returned and said, okay, now things feel normal. You know, now, you know, with humility and humor, I, I can laugh at it and say, okay, what took you so long to get here? I'm just going to keep grinding along. I don't let it, you know, get to me. So that's, that's this bigger idea it, in the gyms when we're doing uh, long grinds with my athletes. I'll, I'll say, hey, you know, don't let your head beat you. Don't make it harder than it is. And I think that's something that we can do. We kind of fight the suck, you know, just by embracing it and kind of welcoming along, you know, as, as a companion along to the journey, this kind of honorary companion, but still a companion can make all the difference in, in how you perform and, and your attitude, which affects how you perform, certainly helps with your wisdom, your growth on your path to, to be more wise and humility. And, and a big part of that is, is, uh, having some humor about it, being able to laugh about yourself and laugh at yourself and laugh at your situation. There's a one uh, quiet professional here who's a mountain, a professional mountain guide. 
And he's a, he's a guy, uh, a lot of the mountain guides are pretty incredible athletes. He's not one of them. <laughs> uh, he's a pretty uh, average athlete, but boy, he's just has a, a great attitude and he's a really a grinding worker. And, you know, he's on the cusp of becoming an international certified mountain guide, which is in that world, a huge deal. And, you know, from where he started, I mean, a few years ago, he started skiing. He was working towards a ski mountaineering pin. And I mean, he was a terrible skier, but now, he, I mean, he's, He's guiding in the backcountry, you know, for in the Tetons. I mean, it's huge. And, but anyway, in the gym, you know, I'll, they'll be doing something and I'll, I'll make it harder, you know, and everybody else moans. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> that can make all the difference, um, that, that idea. So I guess from my perspective, it's not this macho thing that, you know, I can suffer more than anybody else. It's that you kind of know it's coming and you're suspicious when it's not there. And, and when it does come, you kind of welcome it. You embrace it. And as a, as a companion, you know, as part of the journey that we all are on and, and, you know, and just work through it. One of the things that I kind of personally live with is I, I'm kind of a pessimist. And I heard this one time that uh, the good thing about being a pessimist is you're either right or pleasantly surprised. <laughs> and I, I kind of like that sometimes as I, as I think about things I've gone through. And another element of being a quiet professional you talk about is this idea of, of gratitude, why, why do you think it's important for quiet professionals to develop gratitude? How does that help them, you know, develop that craftsman mentality that there should be striving for? You know, there's, I'm still developing my, my thoughts on, on gratitude, but a couple of things really come to mind when I think about how gratitude can, can help us on this journey. The first is that when things are not going well, being able to take a step back and identify and think and acknowledge the things that are good can really help put the situation in perspective and can help 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 the person you know come to some peace or give them a sense of solace and so that what gratitude can do is it can give you perspective and most things are never as bad as our mind makes them out to be the second thing that gratitude can do is when you're uh, when you purposely take the time to identify those great things in your life, it can really help you live in the present. And I think that is so important and such a challenge for everybody. I think it has been for all time to to be able to live in the present and enjoy that and be enthusiastic and understand how beautiful and incredible life is and the, and the wonderful people you have in your life and, you know, and how blessed you are to have, you know, your, your job or your occupation and doing something you love or living the place you love. And so it can, uh, again, just kind of give you this idea or it can really help you to live in the, in the present. So when we talk about gratitude, you know, most of the time to hear about gratitude is something you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to do almost in a negative way, but, as I think about it and experience it, it's really being grateful is, is another gift to myself. It, it helps me be more peaceful. It helps put things in perspective and it helps me live in the present. Well, Rob, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your quiet professional idea that you're fleshing out here? Yeah, we like uh, just said that, you know, the essay and kind of the, the original essay and, and the breakouts that go deeper into the individual elements just at our website at mtntactical.com. And 
or you can probably search just what does it mean to be a quiet professional and uh, it'll probably come up on Google. Awesome. Rob Shaw, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett, again, thanks for having me. My guest today was Rob Shaw. He's the founder and president of Mountain Tactical Institute. You can check out what they do over there at Mountain Tactical at mtntactical.com. And uh, make sure to check out his essays, what it means to be a quiet professional. Just look for Google, what does it mean to be a quiet professional, and then have a link to all the different attributes we talked about, and he fleshes them out even more. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash quietprofessional, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, if you got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to go through review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider telling a friend or a family member about the show if you think they'd get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Mm-hmm.